I just want to invite uh, my brother Paolo to come up right now and uh, lead us in our scripture reading. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and, uh, and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Morning, everyone. So I want to start today with a question for all of you. And the question is, why are we here? Not in the sense of like, why are we at the YMCA for a church service this morning, but like in the sense of why do we exist in the first place? Why is there something here rather than nothing at all? What's the meaning of all of this? Is all that we can see all that there is, or is there something more than this? These are questions that all of us have to deal with in life. All of us have to face these questions. And they're questions that go back to the question of origins, right? Like if, if everything that exists exists simply because 14 billion years ago, by random chance, there was an explosion and all of this came from that, then there is no God. There is no bigger meaning or purpose. After we die, there's nothing. Any, any meaning we have in our lives simply comes down to the meaning we choose to give them. And that only lasts and exists as long as we're here to continue giving them that, that meaning. If, like some religions teach, the universe exists because there are several different gods and they somehow had like a fight and we are the result of that. That's what lots of religions teach throughout human history. If that's the case, then we exist either for the sake of serving the gods or for the sake of avoiding their displeasure, but we're sort of in the middle of a battle and we have to, to, to navigate that wisely so that we don't get ourselves into trouble. But if, as the Bible says, we were created as an act of love by a God who cares deeply about us, that actually has a deep impact on who we are and who we're meant to be and how we're meant to live. The question of origins is very, very important in determining how we live our lives today. And Genesis in the Bible is a book of origins. It answers most of the big questions we have in life, like where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there anything more than this? And it even goes on and, and talks about like what's gone wrong in the world. It doesn't fully answer the question of how do we make it right? How do things get better? But it, it actually hints at that as well. And if we're going to understand the meaning of life and the story of the Bible, how we fit into that story today, what our, our lives are meant to look like in light of that, we need a solid grasp of the book of Genesis. Understanding the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is going to help us understand who we're meant to be. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis during our time together. And it's a long book. We're not going to look over the whole book in a few weeks. We're going to take it slowly. From now till the end of February, the goal is to get through the first four chapters. And then we'll take a break and come back to it at another time in the future. But today we're going to start out where any good story starts in the beginning. 
And what we're going to see is that God's character and God's power are good news for our lives today. God's character and power are good news for our lives today. And we'll see that God is, we'll look at God's character, and we'll see that God cares. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that these are words that you have revealed to us to show us who you are and who we are and and what this world is that you have made and how to live properly in it. And God, I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would give us wisdom, that you give us insight into who you are, who we are, how you call us to live in response to those realities, and that you'd be transforming us from the inside out into the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that we need to see in these verses today is that God is. It says it right here, in the beginning, God. Now, this is a very controversial statement in the world today, that God is. Some people believe there is no God, there's no way there could be a God. Other people believe, sure, sure, there may be a God, but there's no way that we could say the God of the Bible is the true God. And these opening two verses of Genesis, right off the bat, they're saying there is a God as opposed to no God. And they're saying there's only one God as opposed to many gods. And they're saying the God of the Bible is the true God as opposed to any other God. Now in our world today, those three statements, those are jarring statements to make. And in the world of the Bible times, they were also jarring statements to make. The Bible from the first couple sentences comes out and make bold declarations that have big impacts on our lives. And my guess is that maybe, probably not for all of us, for for some of us, that might make us a bit uncomfortable. Like in our world, you can't just stand up and say, there is a God and it's the God of the Bible. It feels like that needs to be defended. We need to prove that that's somehow true. And over the years, there are lots of really smart people who have come up with lots of different logical arguments to help prove that that's true, that there really is a God and that the God of the Bible really is that God. And that type of logical argument, it's been helpful for many people. I think there's a place for it. But do you know why people have had to work so hard to come up with these arguments? It's because they can't just steal them from the Bible because the Bible doesn't argue for God's existence in that way. You know, there are some things the Bible says and you're like, I'm just gonna take that and and use that and steal it. There's no logical argument for God's existence in the Bible that you can just steal and use as your own. The Bible never tries to convince us using logical arguments that God exists. It simply assumes that God is real and presents that as a fact. You can see it here, and that's how it operates throughout the entire Bible. The writers of the Bible, they cannot conceive of the world existing apart from God, and they don't expect you to be able to either. Sometimes the Bible goes out of its way to show that, that this God is the real God, as opposed to the gods of Egypt or Canaan or Rome or other ancient countries, but it never tries to prove that there is a God, as opposed to no God. And why not? Well, because the the writers of the Bible assume that simply by looking at the world and looking at ourselves, we're automatically going to know God exists. We may need some help figuring out which God is the real one, but we'll know there is some kind of divine being in existence simply by opening our eyes and looking around us. I mean, think of it this way. If you walk up to the stage and you see 
power strip. What are you going to assume about this power strip? You're going to assume someone put it there, right? Like, there's a power strip on the stage. Someone must have put it there. It may have been intentionally, it may have been by accident, but someone was involved in playing a role in putting that power strip on the stage. You might not know who did it, but the idea of a power strip ending up on the stage without anyone playing any role in it just doesn't compute in our minds. If you compare, compare the complexity of a, a power strip, non-living, just sitting there, with the complexity of the entire universe and everything in it, including life, that power strip, it's far more simple. And yet, we can't imagine that one thing being at one point in the universe without someone acting to place it there. If that's the case with a power strip on the stage, how much more should that be the case with the entire universe itself? That we can't imagine where it came from unless someone put it there. And maybe you're thinking, but come on, Eric, we have scientific models that can do calculations, show us how the universe came to be, and we don't need God to explain how the universe got here. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. First, we actually know far less about the world and where it came from than we think. Does anyone here follow science news? Okay, so maybe like one or two of you have heard of this. Um, maybe this will be surprising for many of you. But last year, there were photos from this space telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope. Did you guys hear about this? Yeah. Shocking, right? They showed that the working theory of the Big Bang that's been generally accepted by the scientific community for decades can't be true. It sent back pictures of these faraway galaxies, and based on the calculations they've been doing to try and show how the Big Bang works, these galaxies don't look like they're supposed to work if that model is true. And so the scientific community has sort of been shocked by realizing all these work we've been doing for decades to try and show how the world came into being can't be right. There was one astronomer from the University of Kansas, and in response to the photos, she said, right now, I find myself lying awake at three in the morning and wondering if everything I've done is wrong. Right now, professional astronomer who spent her life studying this, doing calculations, right now, I find myself lying awake at three in the morning wondering if everything I've ever done is wrong. She later clarified, she still believes there was a Big Bang, but she's realized everything she thought she knew about how it happened, when it happened, it doesn't work in light of these photos. If a simple photo from a space telescope can seriously undermine the entire scientific community's understanding of the universe, it's, it's fair to take other scientific theories about where we came from with a grain of salt. And I'm not saying science is bad, science is great, but when science comes in and says, we know all this stuff about where the world came from and how it came into being, I mean, clearly we don't know as much as we thought we knew. So we should be careful what conclusions we draw based on what we think we know. The second thing to, to notice about this is even if we could have a perfectly calculated out scientific explanation that explained everything about the universe, where life came from in that development process beyond a shadow of a doubt, that doesn't actually prove that God wasn't involved in that process. Explaining the how of something doesn't explain its why. Like if you saw a ball just flying through the air right now, 
A scientist could look at that ball and they could do calculations and they could figure out this is where the ball was launched from. This is the angle it was launched at. This is the velocity it was launched at. They can tell you everything about the flight of that ball, but you could never look at that ball flying through the middle of the air and say, since we know where this ball started flying from, since we know when it started flying, since we know how fast it was going and what direction it came from, therefore no one could have thrown the ball. That doesn't make any sense. Right? But that's what scientists do when they say we can do the math to show how the universe got here, therefore God doesn't exist. It actually doesn't, doesn't equate. If anything, the fact that there's a ball flying through the air or a universe that exists points to someone or something who started that in motion. And, and again, with that ball flying through the air, if you can track its flight path and figure out the things that have happened to it, it can't answer the question of whether someone threw it. It also can't answer the question why they threw it in the first place. Scientific measurements can't account for that. They're not built to answer those types of questions. If you're going to get answers to those questions, you need what we call revelation. Someone who saw these things happen and reports it to you, or the person who did it themselves coming and telling you, this is what happened. This is how that ball started flying. This is how the universe came into being. And this is why that happened. And of course, that's what the Bible is claiming to give us, that revelation of where the world came from, why God made it in the first place. And the Bible's claim is that God didn't just launch the earth and the universe into being like someone throwing a ball, but actually that moment by moment, moment he's interacting with it and he's sustaining with it and he's keeping it going and he's upholding everything that's happening, every moment of existence and reality. That's one of the big things that we see in this passage, not just what God has done, but actually it tells us some stuff about who God is. Like he's not just an idea. God's not just a, a theory to be proven. He's a person. He can be known and experienced. You can have a relationship with him. What we're going to see in the coming weeks that he creates humanity in his image so we can have the comp capacity to know who he is so we can have a relationship with him because he wants a relationship with us. Not because he's lonely and incomplete without us, but because he's overflowing with love and with joy. And in his love and joy, he wants to share that with others, share the goodness of life with other beings who are able to experience it. And this fact that we're made for a relationship with God, it's awesome, it's wonderful, it's a blessing, but it also places an obligation on us to live a certain way. As the creator and sustainer of life, God has a right to tell us how to live. He wants us to live in a way that enables that relationship with him. And just like in a human relationship, if you want to have a relationship with someone, you have to act properly towards them. And that's based on what acting properly means is based on who they are, how they receive love. And so if we're going to have a relationship with God that we were created for, we need to know him. We need to understand how he receives love. We have to understand who he is so we can relate properly to him. And thankfully for us, the Bible tells us if we live this way, it's a way that, of living that leads to joy. But because God is a person, not just an idea, the Bible leaves us no room to say, yeah, there's a God, sure, I believe in him, and then just go on living as we want. The fact that God exists, the fact that God created us with a purpose actually puts 
a requirement on us to live a certain way. It gives God a claim on us. And if that's the case, then it's really important for us to get to know who God is so we can live properly in response to him. And thankfully, this passage shows us more about his character. So let's look at God's character. One of the things this passage shows us about God is that he is the grand storyteller. God is the grand storyteller. Did you notice that? Did you see how this passage starts? In the beginning, the way any good story starts. Now, when I call it a story, I'm not saying it's not true, right? We all tell true stories every single day. This is not a story in the sense of Star Wars, where like someone made it up from their imagination. It's a story more like the time you saw a celebrity at Starbucks, right? Your friends might not believe it. It may seem crazy to them, but it's true. And the fact that it's a story has some big implications for us. One of them is it's going somewhere. There's a goal to stories. There's a goal to the story of the Bible, which is the story of our God and our universe and our lives. They have a goal. Since the Bible is a story about our God and our world and it's going somewhere, that means human history has a goal and a purpose and a direction. It means your life has a goal and a purpose and a direction. I know it doesn't always feel like that. Like sometimes it just feels like you're stuck in a loop. Like you wake up, you have a day full of struggles, you somehow manage to get through them, you get to the end of the day, you crash in your bed, you pass out, you wake up the next morning and it's the same thing again. You know, all that laundry that you spent the full day washing and drying and folding is back in the laundry room, ready to be washed and folded again. Right? Like your, your child, despite the fact that you've helped them so many times to get dressed for school, still doesn't understand how to put their own clothes on and needs you to help them get dressed and undressed and all of that again. Things get spilled, people get upset at you, and you just feel like, is this forever? And it feels like we're just sort of stuck in a loop, like we're never really going anywhere. But if the story of history and the story of the Bible, the story you and I are living in, if it has a purpose and a goal and it's going somewhere, it means we're not stuck in an infinite, pointless cycle. That's good news, right? All of these things that are happening to us, it's pointing to something greater. It's moving us in a certain direction. But moving towards a goal isn't always a good thing in and of itself, is it? Like Romeo and Juliet moves towards a goal. And the goal that it moves towards is tragedy and death. If human history and our lives are moving towards that goal, maybe we don't want to move towards it. Maybe we'd rather be stuck in a loop so we can avoid that end, right? And so do these verses tell us anything beyond that there is a goal of history? Do they tell us anything about the goal of history so we can know whether it's a good goal, whether it's something we actually want to be part of? Yes, they do. Because they tell us that the one writing this story of history, the one orchestrating moment by moment the, the history of the world, the one working behind the scenes to write that story and bring it to its proper goal is none other than God himself. And what is God like? Well, we see right off the bat, he's a creator. In the beginning, God created. Really interesting, this, the Hebrew word translated created here occurs many times in the Old Testament, it only ever has one subject for this verb. 
Only one person ever creates in this sense. Any guess who it is? You see it right here in verse one. God. God is the only one whoever creates in this sense. And every time this word is used, it results in something new coming into being or something old being renewed. And so God, who is he? What is he like? God is a being who brings newness and renewal in a way that no one and nothing else can. The one writing the story of history is the one who brings newness and renewal in a way that no one and nothing else can. And what do we see him create right here? It says he created the heavens and the earth. That, that means the entire universe, the sky, the land, everything, everything that exists in the universe, God made it in the beginning. As the, as the creator, he's also the ruler of it. He's got authority over it. He is all powerful. The one who holds all power in the universe is the same one who brings newness and renewal to our lives. Isn't the world a wonderful place to live? And not only are these things true of God, we also are going to see in the coming weeks, he's good. We're going to see next week that he's the God who brings order out of chaos, that he's the God who brings fullness out of emptiness, that he's the God who brings life out of nothing, that he's a God who wants things to be good and who celebrates goodness. If this is the God who's writing the story of history and who's writing the story of your life, and you're living in his story and having a relationship with him rather than resisting him, how can the ending to your story be anything other than very good? That's where this story is moving. That's the goal. That's the end. Goodness and joy and life forever. But that doesn't mean things are just going to be wonderful. We can just cruise through life today and have everything be great. Because the other thing we see about God in this passage is that he is patient. He works slowly. He takes time to reach his goals, right? Like God has the power that he could have written the story of the Bible. So it went like this. In the beginning, they all lived happily ever after. That would be a wonderful way to, to just live life, wouldn't it? In the beginning, they all lived happily ever after. No trouble, no pain, no death, no disease, nothing bad ever happening. Just from the start, all lived happily ever after. Wouldn't be much of a story, but he could have written it that way. He could have skipped over all the pain, evil, and death, but he didn't. I mean, even if he wanted to include all the stuff that makes it a good story, he still could have fast-forwarded the process a little bit and just created everything fully formed, ready to go, fully inhabited, but he didn't. What do we see in verse 2? The earth was without form and void. It's hostile to life. It's uninhabitable. It's complete chaos. It lacks any type of order. Yes, we're going to move towards order. The, the emptiness next week is going to be filled. The, the chaos is going to be given order. But that's not how it starts out. Now, why would God, when he has the power to just create it fully formed, why would he start out making it formless and void? I think it was to show us something about his character. And what does that show us about his character? It shows us that he's patient. 
You know, whether you believe that the seven days of creation in Genesis 1 are seven literal 24-hour days, or whether you believe that they are metaphorical and that actually it took billions of years for that process, and this is just a descriptive way of describing it, and we have people who believe both of those in this church, so wherever you land on that, you're welcome here. But one thing everyone can agree on is that he didn't make it all at once. He could have, but he chose not to because God is patient. He's far more patient than we are. How often in your life do you face a situation where you're feeling frustrated and overwhelmed and things aren't moving as fast as you want them to and you're just like, God must not care about me? Because if he did, he would have done something by now. He would have fixed this. He would have made it better. I've been there. But guess what? God is patient. He shows us from the first verses of the Bible that he is patient when he creates the world in this incomplete state. And this theme of God's patience carries on throughout the Bible. Just a couple examples. You fast forward to Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They eat the fruit that God said, don't eat it or else you're gonna die. And God comes to them. He gives them consequences for their disobedience. But, but in that process, he promises to send a rescuer who's gonna set things right. Now, God could have made that rescuer the first child they had, but he didn't. He waited several thousand years before sending that rescuer. It didn't mean he had given up on humanity. It didn't mean he had forgotten his promises. It just means God is patient. A couple chapters later, Genesis chapter six, humanity becomes so evil that it tells us the the thoughts and intentions of humanity's hearts were only evil continuously. And God decides I'm going to wipe them all out with a flood. So does it start raining right away? No, he comes and finds this guy named Noah. He says, build a boat. And then he waits a hundred years while Noah builds a boat before any rain comes. Does that mean God was making empty threats? No, it just means God is patient. A couple chapters later, Genesis 12, God, he calls this man named Abraham. He makes him a promise that I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. Now, if you were going to make a great nation out of someone, what would you do? Here's what I would do. I would find someone who's about 18 years old. I would have them pump out a child every year or two for the next like 30 or 40 years and then have all their kids do that so that 100 years down the the road, we've got like over a thousand people in this nation to be, right? We're We're gonna get this done. But God, what does he do? He waits till this dude is 75 years old. And then he comes and he makes him a promise. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. But the baby doesn't come right away. He waits another 25 years till this guy's 100 years old before sending one child who also has to wait till later in life to have his two children because his wife is barren until he prays to God to, to give her children. Had God forgotten his promise because he made this family wait so long to have children? because he acted in such an unstrategic way of building a nation? No, it just means God is patient. And guess what? 
That's three examples. We've skipped some. We've made it through 12 chapters of the first book of the Bible, looking at examples of God's patience. It's a theme that continues throughout the Bible. God is incredibly patient. And you and I, we get upset when God takes like hours or days to fix our problems. But God has been known to take decades, centuries, millennia to do his work because he is patient. And can we all admit, sometimes that patience drives us nuts because we just want him to work faster. But also, that patience is such good news for us. Because I don't know about you, I've tested that patience before. I would not be here today if God was any less patient than he is. God's patience is incredibly good news for us. And I think part of the reason God's so patient is because of this fact that he is the greatest storyteller there is. You know, arguably, arguably, you can debate this, we can disagree. One of the greatest book series written in the English language is Lord of the Rings. And if you read Lord of the Rings, something you're gonna realize is a lot of bad things happen to the main characters in that book series. Like a lot of things go wrong. A lot of the heroes spend a ton of time just despairing, borderline hopeless that anything they do is gonna make a difference. And yet without all that darkness, without all that stuff going wrong, it wouldn't actually be a story worth reading. Having to overcome more adversity and more difficulty, it makes the ultimate victory that much greater once it's accomplished. And no story is greater, no victory is greater than God's ultimate victory over his enemies and and the party that he throws to celebrate that goes on into eternity where God gets to celebrate the fact with us that the world is now as it was always meant to be. God is the greatest storyteller. He allows difficulties, he allows troubles because it means that in the end, the victory is even greater. But in the meantime for us, that's still difficult because it means we still have to face troubles. And so the other thing we need to see from this passage is that God cares. God cares. Look at verse two with me again. It's telling how things were in the beginning. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Absolutely everything is in a state of absolute chaos. Does that sound like a a good description of your life sometimes? Absolutely everything is absolute chaos. What do we say on those days where it just feels like everything in our lives is absolute chaos? Oh, God must have forgotten about me today. Anyone ever ever felt that? You don't have to put your hands up, but I know, because we all do that. Or we say something like, oh, if God really cared, he'd do something. With this unspoken assumption that the fact that I can't see what God is doing means he's doing nothing. But here in this verse, I want you to see, the earth is formless and void, everything is chaos. That's not a sign that God is absent. It's not a sign that God has given up. It's actually a sign that God's at work in this situation. Because without God doing that initial work of creation, there isn't anything to be chaotic. There's just nothing. The fact that there are things to be chaotic is a sign that God has stepped into this situation and God is at work and God is doing something. I mean, I think there are parallels in in a difficult marriage. You know those days where you're just, every interaction with your spouse seems like you're fighting, yelling, saying things that you're gonna regret later on that are just intended to hurt them. 
maybe even some physical violence involved. And it just feels like absolute chaos. If you've been in that pattern for weeks or months or years and you've been praying for God to change things and it feels like nothing is any different, nothing is changing, the situation can feel hopeless. It can be easy to be like, God, where are you? It can be easy to feel like God's not there and God doesn't care. But actually, maybe the chaos is a sign that there's hope. Because guess what? You're still interacting with one another. You're still trying in these fumbling, failing ways to make things work, right? It means there's far more hope for your marriage than if one partner just decides I'm giving up, moving out, cutting off contact. Yeah, when that happens, there's far less chaos, but also far less hope for the marriage. The chaos and the fighting, it can feel discouraging. It can feel like God's not at work, but actually without God at work, you don't even have that. And in the midst of the chaos and disorder and darkness in verse two, I want you to see what's happening. What's happening is God is there and God is at work. And notice it's completely dark. If we had been there looking at the scene, we would have seen nothing. If someone would have been like, where is God? We'd be like, I can't see him. There's nothing here. It would have just seemed dark and chaotic and crazy but God's spirit is there hovering over the waters. Now this word hovering, it's used in the book of Deuteronomy to describe what a mother eagle does when she flutters over her nest, teaching her children how to fly. It's a posture of care and provision. It's a posture of equipping for life. In the darkness and chaos and emptiness, God himself steps into the story to bring order and life, to provide care. And again, it's not going to be instantaneous. He's going to take time to do it, but he's there and he's working because God is a God who works to bring order out of chaos. That's the normal way God works, to bring order out of chaos. And sometimes the chaos that seems like it's going to destroy us because he's the greatest storyteller, he actually uses that as a means of rescuing us. The deep here, that's the place of darkness, formlessness, emptiness, that just makes the world uninhabitable, unwelcoming to humanity. If you fast forward to Exodus chapter 15, God uses the deeps, his exact word, as his way of rescuing his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. God takes the enemy that threatens to destroy us and uses it as his perfect means of rescuing us. He's not only able to bring order out of chaos, he's able to use the source of our chaos as the means of saving us. I told you, he's the greatest storyteller there is. And what that means is in our lives, sometimes the situations that we look at and we interpret as a sign that God can't be active in my life right now. God can't care about what's happening in my life right now. God's not at work in my life right now. Those exact situations can be the exact situations where he's working the exact things that are pointing to his presence and his activity. We just need to be patient and wait till we can see how that's the case. So what does that mean for our lives today? It means don't think because things are dark and chaotic in your life right now that God has abandoned you. Chaos and disorder are the exact places where God loves to step in and do his amazing work. So when it feels as a parent like there's absolutely nothing you can do to connect with your teen, 
nothing that you're trying that's, that's giving you a relationship with them? What if the chaos and darkness of that relationship is where God is just waiting to step in? When it feels like all you ever do with your spouse is yell at one another and you're wondering whether it's time to call it quits on your marriage, what if? What if that chaos and darkness are God's way of getting, him to invite, uh, getting you to invite him into the story of your marriage? When you're feeling overwhelmed with depression, you don't even know how you're gonna have the strength to get out of bed this morning. What if that chaos and darkness is exactly where God's planning to meet you and give you strength today? Rather than a sign that he's absent, our chaos and darkness, it might be the perfect context for God to just sneak up behind us without us even realizing he's there until he puts his arms around us and we can feel him. How comforting for us today is it to know that from the beginning of creation, God has been about the job of bringing order out of chaos. It's his regular pattern. I mean, one, one example from the Bible that shows this, nothing in all of history has been more chaotic and dark and hopeless from a human perspective than Jesus on the cross. God becomes human, gets rejected and murdered by the people he came to rescue. It doesn't get worse than that. What could be more chaotic than the death of the one who brings order to the universe? What could be more dark than the death of the light of the world? But what happened? Actually, the same exact thing that happened in creation. The, the spirit steps in. We're told in, in Romans 8, 11, that the spirit raised Jesus back to life. The Holy Spirit steps in to bring order and life out of chaos, and he raises Jesus out of, from the dead. He brings light to the darkness of that situation. If God is a God who can bring order out of the chaos of the unformed universe, if God is a God who can bring life out of the death of God, how much more can he bring order and hope and life to the situations each of us face each day? Church, the God of the Bible, he's a big God. He's a powerful God. He's the true God. And he is writing a beautiful story in the history of the universe. It's a story that involves every single one of us. And it's a story of redemption, a story of hope, a story of newness and renewal. It's a story with a happy ending, an ending of eternity of joy and celebration, but it's a story that's gonna have difficulties along the way. And what we see today is that God is good. So we can trust him to work for good, even in the midst of our difficult times. And we see that God is powerful. So he's able to deal with anything that comes up in our lives, no matter how big it feels to us. And God is patient. So he's not always gonna do things in our timing. But that doesn't mean he's absent. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he's given up on us. It, it may just be that he's writing a bigger story in our lives than we could have imagined. And in order to have a greater story, greater trials and obstacles need to be overcome. So when you face, not if, but when, you face trials and difficulties and darkness this week, don't run from God. Don't take the difficulties as a sign that God doesn't care or that God isn't there. Cling to him. Let him be present with you. Invite him to bring order out of your chaos and light out of your darkness and be patient even when it seems like nothing is happening. Because maybe in the midst of your darkness and chaos, just like in Genesis chapter one, verse two, the spirit is hovering in a place where you can't see him, but just waiting to bring order and light and life into your story as well. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that your word reveals to us who you are so that we can know you. We thank you that you are a powerful God, that you are a caring God, that you're a God who brings order out of chaos, light out of darkness, life out of death, new out of what is old. I pray that this week that you would give us faith to trust in you in our difficult times. You give us confidence to cling to you even when it's hard. You give us patience to wait for you when it feels like you're not working in our timing. Make us the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we said during the sermon, God, he works, he brings order out of chaos. And one of the most incredible stories from the Bible of how he does that is the story of the cross when he raises Jesus from the dead and brings him back to life. And he's a God who is active and present in our lives today, and yet so often we forget that. We get caught up in what's immediately in front of us. We lose sight of who he is and what he's doing. And God, the Bible says that he understands our weakness. He understands our tendency to forget. And so he's given us communion as a gift to remember. He's given us bread and wine a picture of the body of Christ that was broken for us to rescue us and save us and the blood of Christ that was poured out for us to give us a new relationship with God. And he's given it to us in the form of food and drink so that our different senses can get involved in helping us remember who he is because all of us have a tendency to forget. And so what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna take communion together. This is a celebration that's for Christians So if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, we are so glad that you're here. Um, We're just going to ask you when it comes past, just let it go. Don't take one of these. Um, If you are a Christian, even if you're not part of the Bridge Church, we invite you to join us in taking communion. Um, And what will happen is we'll hand out the elements, and then in a couple minutes, I'll come back up front and we'll all take them together. So can I invite the ushers to come forward and hand it out? And as they hand it out, I want to encourage you to just take a couple minutes to reflect, to remember God's goodness to you, to remember the work that he's done of rescuing us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, shown through Jesus' death on the cross. Thank you for this reminder and this chance to celebrate together as a church family the work that you've done to rescue us and save us. Help us to remember each day your amazing love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band comes up to lead us in our closing song, I want to encourage you to take 60 seconds to turn to the person next to you and share one thing from today's sermon that you can take away and apply in your life this week.